0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's a real thrill for Gwen and me to be back here in Kirkpatrick uh, and speaking to you. uh, We really do feel that we're among friends. Can I say, first of all, that I have always wanted to be a fridge magnet? Uh, So thank you for that. Uh, And can I also say, Lindsay, Gwen really wants that grommet costume. So... (laughs) But it's good. It's good. It's good to be here and to share a little bit from God's word, but also say a little bit about what is happening uh, in Greystones. Uh, we've been there uh, just under five years, so in some respects it's not very long. Uh, in other respects, we're long enough to have us, to, for us to have really seen God's hand uh, at work. Graystones, uh, Greystones, for those of you who don't know it, and when we left Kirkpatrick to say we were going to Greystones, a lot of people said, oh, I used to holiday down there. And a few people even said, I met my wife or husband down there at a Christian holiday. Well, some of the old Greystones is, you know, is, is different now. Things have changed, but it is still a beautiful place to live. And if you just uh, look at the first couple of slides, uh, I guess uh, thinking of beaches and nice uh, hill walks. Uh, uh, on a a morning like this. Uh, We'll have you rushing down there, but let me assure you, Greystones is probably as cold today as it is here. Uh, And that's our church on on the left. It's won lots of awards. The town has won lots of awards for being the most beautiful place to live with uh, sports facilities and restaurants and beaches and various other things. And you might be sitting thinking, why on earth are we supporting Monty and Gwen to go down and just live in a wonderful place like that? Uh, It has its drawbacks as well. I've often said that Greystones, I I call it leisure central. Um, If you're aware of the fact that, you know, although for us in Greystones, some of the news we've been hearing, you know, flags and riots and all of that seem a world away. um, For ministry purposes, there are different challenges. Um, In this day and age, when people will maybe decide to, come to church, people who profess faith even to come to church, maybe if there's nothing better to do. Uh, let me tell you, there's always something better to do in Greystones. Lots of things. So for it to be involved in the community and to really seek to uh, look, reach out requires a level of faith and commitment um, that uh, has maybe been difficult at times for us uh, to engender. Uh, however, there's uh, Many ways in which when we came to Greystones, we found a lot of changes from the sort of ministry that we had been uh, used to. Uh, there was uh, a level whereby people said, you know, we'll come for an hour on Sunday morning, but there was nothing else happening. Uh, There was maybe one woman's Bible study and an occasional uh, Bible study from time to time. Nothing in the evenings, no youth work, no outreach, nothing like that. And the expectation was, well, come down and, you know, know, it's good to have someone here to, to look after us for a few years. I remember one lady, very supportive, lovely lady, met me shortly after I arrived. And I'd been preaching somewhere else in Dublin that particular Sunday. And the next day she met me when she was walking her dog. She asked me how I got on. In England. And I said, sorry. She goes, you popped over to see your football team. I says, no, actually, I was preaching in another church in Dublin. Oh, she says, I was wondering where you were. And then I turned the telly on and saw your football team playing with it. Oh, sure, that's where he'll be. And doesn't he just deserve it? Uh, So, you know, carte blanche to pop over to the Etihad Stadium anytime I want. And nobody would have complained. Let me reassure you, I didn't do that. Uh, And what is happening now? Well, we've seen some amazing encouragements. Uh, I want to thank you for uh, a number uh, of things. I mean, we've got a a wonderful youth group uh, and uh, a youth discipleship group, uh, you know, a dozen or so teenagers, some of whom, you know, families don't come to church at all, meeting on a Wednesday night as well as a Sunday night. We have a new children's club started as a result of the uh, summer and Easter activities. We have home groups. We've got special outreaches taking place. Uh, And an awful lot of that, I have to say, really is due to the different levels of help that you at Kirkpatrick have given us. Uh, As you will see here, I want to thank you first of all for help. You'll see a familiar face on the left there. And for the last three Easters, we have benefited from people from Kirkpatrick, uh, maybe just one family at a time, coming down and helping us with a small Easter club. (coughs) And what that does is it bridges the gap between summers, between our summer Bible clubs, which have just grown and grown over the years, and have now led to the start of a new children's ministry. And uh, the Hayes came down uh, last Easter, and we had about 50 kids or something at that, and then in the summer we would usually have about 100 or more. And uh, Uh, segueing nicely into the next one because on on the right there is Lindsay who I'm sure you've met and if you go to the next uh, slide uh, uh, you'll see that the help that you have given financially has helped us to keep our youth interns and youth worker. And on the left, there is our first guy, John O'Donnell, who I know preached here on at least one occasion. And this was his farewell as he left us after three years. Three years, and he couldn't really have stayed without your help here in Kirkpatrick. When I arrived in Greystones, there were about three young people. Uh, Rob there uh, on the right of John was about 13. He was only one of three young people. Uh, He is now finished at school. And as I was saying to Lindsay, he's now interning with Scripture Union, doing the sort of school's work that Lindsay is doing around the schools in Dublin and in Wicklow. He's a budding artist. And for John's farewell, he actually painted a picture of Greystones for him. Yeah, John was succeeded by Lindsay, uh, who's on the left there. And we now for this year have Jamie from Florida, who's uh, coming over from a, a partner in, in the States and the two of them in charge of the CSSM birthday cake, which is probably a bad idea, but uh, they have really taken John's work and expanded it, and on a Sunday evening now, we could have up to 20 uh, young people uh, on a, they've started a new kids club as a follow-up to the Easter club, and they're, they're uh, doing really well with kids, most of whom don't come to our church on a Thursday afternoon, and then the Wednesday night Bible study, and you come to our church in Greystones, uh, I, this is my second Sunday out of the pulpit there, and any time I'm out of the pulpit and I go back, the visiting preacher will always say, I'm really thrilled at the number of young people. Some of them who don't come from church families at all or families who, who aren't attending church and they will get themselves up and they will come down and we don't do anything. We're pretty traditional in many ways but they love the fellowship they love the teaching, they love the praise and they just come and uh, you know, to meet with Jesus uh, and that's really really uh, encouraging. If you look at the next slide, uh, that was this year's youth Christmas dinner Gwen cooked for 25 people uh, and I just looked at that with real thanksgiving as a real symbol of, a, of just a bunch of enthusiastic young Christian kids and their friends eating together because they just love to be together and they love what they're learning. Uh, when I think back to four and a half years ago when there were three teenagers in the church, that is such uh, a cause for thanksgiving uh, for me. So thanks for your financial help. Thanks also for your friendship, if you look at the next slide. Uh, uh, and that has come out through, uh, you know, people helping out in various ways, uh, so that when we sent the team to ASHA in India, we were joined by uh, four from this congregation. You'll see them on the right there, and that was a wonderful opportunity to keep the partnership going. Uh, And on the left, sometimes folks from Kirkpatrick have come down and uh, watched our um, uh, summer camp and helped out with that and helped with the American team that has come over there, just on a friendship level, and that's been really important as well. And not least for your prayers. In the next slide, there. Sorry, that, that, sorry, let's go back to the one before that. The, uh, yes, that was our church weekend. I just meant to say to you, in order to keep another way in which we can keep the partnership going, is if any of you would like to join with us for our church weekend, it's been at Avoca now for last three occasions, and that was taken at the end of the current church weekend. We'd love to have some of you there. I know it's maybe a little bit far away, but if any of you can make it, uh, next time we're having one, we'll mention it. It'll be really great to have some of you folks there. And then your prayers uh, for our outreach. This... uh this was our a play that we did on our Christmas Carol service. an idea we took from Kirkpatrick. We invite the local traders and we give them a buffet and then we, we have a carol service that they take part in doing the readings, etc and This year, uh, I spoke after doing a short drama, and those who were in India will recognize Anna, who really had been on the fringes of church life and then she came to India with us, and now she's one of our core young people and was accepted into membership and in professional faith last uh, two Sundays ago so we 're really delighted and pray for events like that where I'm still going around the town and people are asking me and talking to me and thanking me for the carol service and all that happened there. And we're thrilled at the ways in which this has uh, helped us to go from strength to strength. So, is there, you know, can we put our finger on anything? I mean, the early days were difficult. The early days we were thinking, you know, there is no expectation here. And then suddenly, and I'm sure it's as a result of the fact that because of your help, we kept our youth interns and your prayers uh, as you looked at your fridge and as you remembered us. Uh, I think over the last uh, 12 to 18 months, we've experienced God's encouragement. Uh, and we, didn't, we haven't done anything special other than seek to be, be faithful and uh, obedient to him. But of course it's not about us, it's about the message, isn't it? It's about Christ, it's about how he takes an amazing message and applies it and transforms it to people's life. And that's just what I want to leave you with uh, this morning. I want you to look at this episode in John chapter 8 and I want to ask you the question, do you feel abandoned? Do you feel maybe abandoned by those around you? Do you feel abandoned by friends? Do you feel even at times abandoned by God and abandoned uh, by the church? If so, I want to remind you of the grace that changes people, which is at the heart of our message in John chapter 8. Now, you will, those of you who have been uh, alert will have noticed that in John chapter 8, it says at the top that uh, this is a a passage that's sort of uh, disputed in in, in a lot of Bibles. Uh, I'm not going to go into that now, but sufficient to say this, that it is a manuscript issue. It is not an authenticity issue. It's a manuscript issue of which there were many at the time the Gospels were put together. It's not an authenticity issue. There is ample evidence that this belonged to the the series of Jesus' uh, sayings and Jesus' events that were eventually compiled into the various Gospels. And if people say, ah, well, you know, it was added in later, etc., let me just make one comment about that. If one thing characterized the early church... From those of you who have looked at that period, the first few centuries, it was a particular harshness and sternness about sexual sin over and above other types of sins. The disproportionate attention that the early post-apostolic church gave to sexual sin. So one would think that uh, if the early church was trying to manipulate the Bible, that this is exactly the sort of story they would have left out rather than have added in. And so we come to this story Uh, of Jesus' dealings with this woman who had been caught uh, in the act of adultery. And what I want us to look at is the amazing difference it is between finding ourselves at the mercy of other people, at the mercy of ourselves, even at the mercy of religion, and finding ourselves at the mercy of Jesus. An immense difference. First of all, look at the story and look at the tactics of the Pharisees and the scribes. There were tactics of entrapment, of deceit, of hypocrisy. They were trying to trap Jesus. They were stretching even their own legalism to the limit. They were misusing their God-given law. It says, for example, that the woman was taken in the act of adultery. Now, this wasn't a compromising situation. This wasn't inappropriate behavior. This was a per- There were other laws for that. This was actually calling in a law that stated that the, the, the couple actually had to be in the act of of sexual intercourse, which of course would mean that there would have been a man there as well. Where was he? Nowhere to be seen. This sort of offense could have been ruled in private, but because these people had no heart for the woman and they were out to trap Jesus, they dragged her into public disgrace that made her stand. Verse 3 literally means made her stand in full view. And then they misquoted the law and said, Moses commands us to stone such women. Stoning was a particularly harsh form of execution. It was not mentioned in the law for this offence. And of course, it wasn't just the woman, but both parties that would have been found guilty. They were determined to get an answer from Jesus because if he had said, Don't, he would have been siding with the pagan Romans who didn't regard this as a crime. If he had said, yes, go ahead and stone her, he could have been charged by the Romans for causing an unlawful death as well as undermining his own teaching and aligning himself to a kangaroo court. And so at the heart of this accusing group was a desire not for the woman's welfare. She was expendable. She was collateral damage. In their determination to catch Jesus out, they were shamelessly harsh towards her while Christ was gentle. They wanted to disgrace her in public while Christ wanted to lift her up and speak into her heart. So, how were Jesus' tactics different? Well, first of all, he shows appropriate contempt for religious hypocrisy and insincerity. He shows appropriate contempt for religious hypocrisy and insincerity. He initially ignored them. It says he started drawing in the sand. Can you imagine how infuriating that would have been for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? You know, it's a little bit like trying to get an answer maybe out of a teacher or out of a politician, and they're not even listening to you. They're playing away on their mobile phone as if they hadn't heard you. Minds elsewhere, not acknowledging your presence. A lot of ink has been spilled on what Jesus was writing I wonder maybe, is this something I'll get a chance to ask when I get to heaven? You know, perhaps he wrote down the name of the man who should have been there. Uh, perhaps he wrote down the names of those present who were also guilty of adultery. Perhaps he wrote down other sins like greed and dishonesty and pride. Perhaps he wrote down parts of scripture that warned against associating with false witnesses or those who misused the law. Maybe he was thinking, this is going to really annoy Christians for 2,000 years. <laughs> we don't know. The most likely answer is that having shown his contempt and his disgust at them, he started writing something relevant. He actually wrote the words that he later spoke. It was traditional for the judge to write down his sentence first and then give it verbally. So that's what was happening here. Jesus started writing, let whoever is sinless throw the first stone, and then he says it. This is brilliant because he didn't dispute the law. He says, okay, she's guilty. Throw a stone. But he stipulates who should do it because normally it would be the witnesses who would do it. But if they were false witnesses, then they also would have stood condemned under the law. The oldest and the most experienced would be held the most culpable because they would have influenced the crowd. They were the leaders. And that is why when they realize that they're backed into a corner, they leave starting with the eldest. They grasp the dilemma they were in because it wasn't any longer about Jesus. They had to ask themselves, do we want to be responsible and liable under our own law for somebody else's death? And so Jesus both upholds the law that unfaithfulness, that adultery, that any form of unfaithfulness under the law was punishable ultimately by death as a breach of a holy covenant But he also insists that the one who passes judgment should be innocent. The one who executes the sentence should be innocent. They must be a competent witness. And here we see mercy and truth meeting. Justice and righteousness and love interacting perfectly. If they were looking for an absolutely just system where all sins, all deviations from the law were punished and carried out to the extreme degree, Jesus could have done that. But the people would have known that if that was the cause, they too would have been under punishment for their own sins. Jesus undermined their selectivity, the bits where they chose the parts of the law they wanted to apply and ignore the others. And he caused them to go away, fuming because he had got the better of them. And so they leave in a type of humble procession, tails between their legs, and the woman is left totally abandoned. Literally, when it says that she she has left, the word is for, uh, for having been left on her own, that she was literally abandoned. But what a wonderful type of abandonment that is. Abandoned by her accusers, abandoned by those who would condemn, abandoned by those who hated her and disgraced her and caused her fear and shame, abandoned by those who would shout guilty at her, but not abandoned by Jesus. He stops writing. I love this, because... He knows right well what's going on. And he's riding away and eventually he looks up with mock surprise and he goes, Oh, where's everybody gone? Where are those who would condemn you? Is there nobody here? No, sir, there's not. Then neither do I. And you see, that's the radical comment. Because you see, Jesus had every right to condemn her. If they needed a credible witness, he could have been that witness. For whatever was or was not going on in that bedroom, God knows what was going on. If they needed an innocent witness, he could have been that witness. If they were looking for someone without sin to cast the first stone, he qualified, he could have done it. But he didn't. Why not? Was he going soft on sin? Was he saying the Old Testament law was wrong? Well, we know from what he said later that he wasn't soft on sin. He says, dear, go. Have the power to be different. Leave it behind you. It implied that she was indeed guilty, living a life characterized by a series of illicit relationships. But Jesus says, no more, enough. But his heart was for this woman, the one who was used and abused, the one who, though guilty like the rest of them, had been made a scapegoat. His heart was for her. But we also know much more clearly that he wasn't soft on sin from something else entirely. He could actually let her go. Even though he was meant to fulfill the law, he could let her go without any punishment simply because one day, not too long in the future, this innocent witness, this one without sin, would take her punishment on himself. Just as he would take the punishment that should have been meted out to the conspicuously absent man and the punishment of the trumped-up witnesses and the punishment of the lying elders and leaders and the punishment of all those that had dragged this poor woman in her shame and humiliation and semi-nakedness into the public square with their misplaced offended sensibilities. Your punishment, my punishment, he would take it on himself. He would pay. It was raw justice that these men wanted sin must be punished. And Jesus says, yes, take the law. Take even the most merciless and harsh and unyielding parts. Make sure justice is done. But don't punish this woman. Punish me instead. I can take that. I can ask that. I can ask what no one else can because I've lived the perfect life. I have fulfilled the law. I have obeyed it. Now let me fall under its curse. So let me be abandoned, let me be disgraced and humiliated and dragged semi-naked in public humiliation into the courtyard and beaten and have crown of thorns in my head. So let me take the sin of all adulterers and all thieves and all self-righteous Pharisees and all religious hypocrites and all sectarian bigots and all who would seek to use God and the things of God and the law of God and misuse the scriptures of God to abuse other people says, Jesus, I'll take it on myself and I will die. I will become sin that they can be free to go and sin no more. I will become the ultimate scapegoat for everybody else like this woman who's been made a scapegoat by religion and those who fail to see or take responsibility for their own guilt. That's what the cross of Christ is all about. Do you see it? Jesus has fulfilled the law Jesus forgives, so why do you not? Because I probably think it's not the people around you that condemn you the most sometimes, or even the church, although you might think that sometimes. In my experience, personally and pastorally, it's most often ourselves. You feel you're being condemned by others because you condemn yourself. You feel unworthy because you've told yourself so many times in so many situations that you're unworthy. And if anyone is likely to see you as unworthy, then surely it's God. Why would we condemn ourselves when God doesn't? Why would we stay away from his people and his fellowship when he invites us? Why would we think that our sin and unworthiness was so great that even the blood of Jesus can't cover it? Why blaspheme God by believing that although that woman could be touched by grace, that although Paul the murderer and Peter the denier could experience his grace, that somehow we're so different that we can't? No, friends, it's different being in the hands of Jesus. Because in his hands he looks at you and he says... Who condemns you? Because I don't. And I do even more than that. I ask you to do something that I never ask people to do where I don't first give them the resources. I ask you to go and be different. Live deliberately. Live differently. Sin no more. Choose life and true purity and true freedom. Get out of here and live. That's what he said to this woman. He didn't just forgive her. He empowered her. He raised her up. He gave her back her dignity. Because that's what he does with us all. And week by week by week in Greystones, this is simply the message I preach. This is simply the message our young people hear from our youth interns. This is the message that I sat in a coffee shop not two weeks ago with a guy who'd come to one of our outreach services and asked to to meet with me afterwards and sat and explained this to him. a, A born skeptic. And I said, listen, whatever your intellectual issues or problems, we can talk about those. But at the, at the, at the heart, as I, as I said to a, a woman, the first hour of the New Year I spent on a New Year's Eve party, and not expecting that from, from midnight to 1 a.m. I would be involved in this sort of conversation uh, with someone. It, it hasn't happened before, but it was a wonderful instance where I just said, you know, when you go to bed at night, can you be assured that you are loved by the one who made you? And um, We took it from there. Uh, And this is the message that changes lives, folks. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. Stuart Townend has written a wonderful song. Sometimes we've, we've used it at communion time in gravestones. I'll put the lyrics up here because I'd love you to see them. It's the invitation. Uh, It could be an invitation to communion, but it's more an invitation to fellowship with Christ and looking forward to the great feast that is ours in heaven. The words are this, come all you vagabonds, come all you don't belongs, winners and losers, come people like me. Come all you travelers tired from the journey, come wait a while, stay a while, welcome you'll be. Come all you questioners looking for answers and searching for reasons and sensing it all. Come all you fallen and come all you broken. Find strength for your body and food for your soul. Come to the feast. There is room at the table. Come let us meet in this place with the king of all kindness who welcomes us in with the wonder of love and the power of grace. Come those who worry about houses and money and those who don't have a care in the world. From every station and orientation, the helpless, the hopeless, the young and the old. Come all believers and dreamers and schemers. Come all you restless just searching for home. Movers and shakers and givers and takers. The happy, the sad and the lost and alone. Come self-sufficient with wearied ambition. And come those who feel at the end of the road. Fiery debaters (coughs) and religion haters. Accusers, abusers, the hurt and ignored. Come to the feast. There is room at the table. Come let us meet in this place with the king of all kindness who welcomes us in with the wonder of love and the power of grace. Folks, thank you for your prayers for us in Greystones. But above all, thank you for sharing in partnership in the gospel the same message that binds us together as brothers and sisters and as servants and, as Lindsay was reminding us, as missionaries wherever God has planted us. Come and visit us sometime. Pray for us and pray for those whose whose lives God is currently touching in that congregation as part of our wider church family in the PCI. Thank you so much. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the fellowship that does bind us together here in Kirkpatrick Memorial and in Greystones. Uh, thank you how in both congregations we have seen your grace at work. We have seen lives changed. Uh, we have seen the growth uh, in numbers, but more importantly, in, in, in spiritual understanding. And Lord God, be with all who are currently struggling like this woman to feel, is there a place for them at the table? Is there a place for them with their father in his home? Is there a place in the arms of Jesus? And if that has been a message that has been important for people this morning, help us to remember that to be at the mercy of Jesus is the only place that we can afford to be. Otherwise, we will kill ourselves. Otherwise, we will let others kill us and rob us of life. Help us to know the life that you promise, the life that is abundant. Amen.